Hey, Sarah here. Summer is fast approaching, and here's what I propose. A relaxed and simple summer that offers just enough structure to keep those long, sticky days from melting into chaos, and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. Also, fairy tales. Lots of fairy tales. (laughs) I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer, and I would love for you to join me. Save your free seat at the workshop by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. See you there. I like Andrew Peterson's Wing Feather Saga. I don't know about that at all. Tell me about it. Oh, it's wonderful. You should read it. I don't want to spoil anything. Well, you have to tell me something. Otherwise, I just think it's about wings and feathers. (laughs) It's not really about wings or feathers. Well, then I'd be very disappointed. (laughs) You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that inspires you to build your family culture around books. Hey, 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 Sarah McKenzie here. This is episode 56 of the Read Aloud Revival. The final episode of season nine, in fact. We'll be taking a bit of a Christmas holiday and then we'll be back with season 10 at the end of January. In the meantime, you can get caught up on episodes you've missed Find all of the Read Aloud Revival podcast episodes in your favorite podcast app or at readaloudrevival.com. I hope you've peeked recently at our redesigned website. We have been working hard on making everything as easy and beautiful to navigate as possible. And one brand new something something we have there is a shop. In the shop, you'll find fantastic tools and resources to help you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. If you're not a part of our Read Aloud Revival membership program, you might still like to get your hands on one of the masterclasses, workshops, or author access video replays that are usually only available to our members. Well, we've pulled some of those and put them into the shop for sale. And so you can grab those, whichever ones look most appealing or could possibly light your family on fire. We also have a brand new line of gifts and merchandise, revivaler gifts and merchandise. (laughs) You know, we work very hard here at the Read Aloud Revival to keep the podcast free of sponsored advertisements. And one of the ways you can help us keep that going is to support the podcast by visiting the Read Aloud Revival gift shop. You'll find custom handmade pottery mugs made in the USA in eight beautiful colors. We'll also have book bags and t-shirts and sweatshirts and some other really fantastic items coming to the shop soon. But right now for Christmas, we've got hand-thrown pottery mugs. And if you want yours under the tree, you want to make sure that you order now so we can get it sent off to you. Head to readaloudrevival.com and click visit the shop to see what's there. Now, today I've got my 13-year-old daughter, Allison, with me because we're interviewing one of her very favorite authors. You ready? Let's do it. Ogsier has been a writer for a very long time, but he says he never really felt like he had found his place until he began writing children's literature. Well, thank goodness he did. Jonathan Ogsier is the New York Times bestselling author of what he calls Strange Stories for Strange Children. His first book, Peter Nimble and His Fantastic Eyes, 
was an ABA New Voices pick and a Book Page Magazine Best Book of 2011. His best-selling Night Gardener is a Junior Library Guild selection, an ABA Indie Next pick, an Amazon Editor's Pick of the Month, and winner of the TD Book Prize and ILA Book Award. More recently, he wrote a follow-up to Peter Nimble and His Fantastic Eyes called Sophie Choir and the Last Story Guard, which happens to be my 13-year-old's favorite. So she's here today to help me chat with our guest, Jonathan Auxier. Allison, would you like to say hello? Hello. (laughs) Today, Jonathan is joining us to talk about writing for children and why he's so driven to connect kids with stories. Jonathan, welcome to the Read Aloud Revival. Thanks so much, Sarah. I'm excited to be here. Well, before we get started and talk about writing, do you want to give us a little background on maybe yourself and your family, where you live, that kind of stuff? So the very bare bones stuff is uh, I grew up bouncing around a little bit, but mainly spent my time in British Columbia outside of Vancouver. I have since settled down into Pittsburgh, the most wonderful city in the world. And uh, and now I live here with my wife and our three little daughters. Okay, fantastic. So tell us a little bit about writing. I know you actually studied playwriting and you were a playwright and a screenwriter, but I've heard that you didn't feel like that kind of writing ever felt the way children's books feel to you. So what pulled you to writing children's literature? Well, the first and most obvious answer would be that I love reading children's literature. That's always been sort of a through line in my life as a reader. Even as I've sort of dabbled in other kinds of storytelling, children's books have always played a huge role in my life, long after they should have in terms of me aging out of them. So, you know, even in the the pre-Harry Potter days, I was this gangly six foot four like, you know, 18 year old wandering around in Barnes and Noble children's section, looking at the new kids books that were coming out and things like that. And I really, I was uh, into adulthood, incredibly compelled by at least a certain class of children's literature that I really enjoyed reading. In terms of kind of the bouncing around in different genres, a lot of that, you know, was just sort of casting about figuring out what it meant to be a professional storyteller. Certainly when I was growing up, movies were sort of the way our culture told stories to itself. And so it it made sense to think in terms of movies when I got to university, and I guess in high school a little bit, but mainly in university, I started studying theater. And theater was so wonderful because you could write a thing and it, it was so collaborative because you were going to work with a director and a designer and actors, and you could also do it right away. It didn't cost a lot of money to throw some actors in a room, bring in an audience, and see something up on its feet. And I think this is why a lot of people in a lot of different art forms start in theater because it's actually incredibly DIY. And which gives you so many opportunities to explore and fail and find your little successes and keep pushing yourself as opposed to a novel, which takes, you know, upwards to a decade to write or a movie, which takes, you know, three years to shoot and edit and millions of dollars. Theater can be done on a shoestring budget. It forces you to play well with others to collaborate. And it also constantly forces, you know, introspective artists, especially I think artistically minded boys are very good at navel gazing, very good at sinking inward and getting very precious about their words and their ideas. And none of that matters if you wanted a room full of people to laugh and they didn't laugh. And when you when you get butts and seats in a theater, all you want people to do is are have strong kind of violent emotional reactions. You want laughter, you want tears, you want applause. And it gives you a very real sense of what it means to connect with an audience, which I think is just an invaluable experience for any kind of storyteller. Now tell me, so when you were growing up, you didn't love reading naturally. You didn't love stories naturally. Is that right? That is correct. When I was growing up, I came from a family that they were very serious readers. And so there were always books in our home. My older sister was a voracious reader and I knew how to read, 
but I didn't enjoy it very much. There were just other things I enjoyed more. And my mother, actually, I guess I got through first grade and most kids, that was right about the time, I think most kids who were, who loved reading, it was clicking in by the time they were finishing. And it was very clear talking to my teachers and just seeing me that again, even though I knew how to read, I just didn't like doing it. It was not an activity that brought me any joy. And my mother sort of panicked and she didn't know how to ensure that this would happen. And so um, she pulled me out of school. And I didn't know this for un- until only about three years ago, I learned the truth of this. But when I was growing up, the story my mother would always tell me is I did second grade twice, the first time I did it at home, and then I went back into a public school. And the reason I was held back, which is the truth of what happened to me, my mother would always just say, I didn't quite think I was ready to let you go, <laughs> um, or something like that, uh, that somehow made it about her emotional need. And, uh, and I also interpreted that as I probably wasn't emotionally quite ready or something. And it wasn't only until very recently, after I had published my first book, that um, I was talking with my mom about literacy. And she told me that that wasn't really the reason that she had done that. And the reason she had pulled me out of school for a year so that I could be quote unquote homeschooled was the, because she was panicking about my reading. And she didn't know how to make me a reader, but she knew that it had to happen. That was not a negotiable thing in our home. And so you my home capable of reading, but you just didn't. Is that right? You were capable yeah. of like decoding words, but you just weren't reading for fun or voraciously at all. I could decode. I probably, I'm, you know, at that stage of literacy, that's part and parcel. So I'm sure it wasn't fun because it wasn't easy. And the only way it gets easy is if you expose yourself to, you know, a metric ton of very boring words, which is why we get these repetitive series like the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, or in my case, I read a lot of Cam Jansen. Um, These are not great stories. We don't return to them and have our minds blown by what little gems they are. (laughs) We read them, we gain the skills we need for a life of reading, and then we never look back. And, uh, But I wasn't getting to that stage uh, when I was getting that massive exposure. And so my mother panicked. She pulled me out. We called it homeschooling. And it was uh, basically my mother's a painter. So she would spend her whole school day painting. And I was in the other room. And there were exactly three things I remember. Really, I only remember two. And she reminded me of the third. The two things I remembered from my homeschooling experience is I had a very good short-term memory. So she made me memorize every single president and vice president, which was very valuable when I moved to Canada and no one cared. Um, (laughs) The other thing she made me memorize is every single prepositional phrase. So at seven years old, I was able to rattle off about a bug and along around before, behind, below, beneath, but by, you know, all these things. I can't remember them now, but oh I, my I, goodness. I, I know exactly what she used seconds. to teach you that too. Uh-huh. It, you know, it was not, I learned later there was a great song to do that, but I didn't have that. I just had all these oh, uh, useless prepositions. And that was all that was truly. And then a little bit of art history. She would create these mnemonic devices. You know, I remember something she wanted me to know, you know, when Columbus sailed the, across the ocean blue, he had a bowl of chili, which she thought I would then interpret as Botticelli, which oh. would teach me that Botticelli's <laughs> Venus painting happened at the same time. Uh, so I need she, to get to know your mother. <laughs> <laughs> she's a wonderful woman. I, she was actually studying gifted education at this time. So maybe these were very advanced techniques. But even as a child, I felt like this doesn't feel like school. This feels way better. And then my memory is I just mostly messed around the rest of that time. It it was very low workload. And it was only when I asked her about this later, she said, no, 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 you forgot the last thing, which is you had to read three hours a day. And she said, as soon as you did your reading, then you could kind of knock off and and play with Legos or do whatever. And I had no memory of this, but it made perfect sense when she explained, I panicked, I brought you home, I just forced you to read for three hours a day because that's all I knew. I just, I figured that was the only way to fix this problem. Um, And I do know that when I came back to my traditional school, you know, a regular public school. I was a year older, 
to be fair, but I was also a, a very strong reader. And my parents were unusually invested in the reading competition that happens every year. They are not competitive people. But I remember them being weirdly tense about the reading competition. And I realize now it's because it was symbolic of the goals that they had for me. Right. Uh, and so that was really one of the only prizes I ever won. But I slaughtered the other kids. <laughs> and that was the year I became a very serious reader. And, and that was a big change in my life. And like most people growing up, you know, I'd have a year where I kind of lost a little interest and then it would get rekindled by a certain series or a certain author. That sort of those ebbs and flows. But that certainly was the intervention that turned me into a reader. And I entirely have my mother to thank for that. Do you remember any of those books that like were part of that formative time that turned you into a reader? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned Cam Jansen, which again, I, I, I'm not sure if those books terribly readable as an adult, but they were valued. They, they served a function and I'm yep. grateful to them. For me, I, I remember very distinctly probably two big moments in my growth as a reader. The first is the first long book that I read completely on my own without adult intervention. And I love this. I, I really think sometimes we do kids a disservice when we give them certain authors. I don't think any grown up should ever give a child, for example, The Stinky Cheese Man, because the whole point of that book is that it's so it's so subversive. <laughs> And, uh, and chaotic. And if a grown up is giving it to you, that's as good as telling you this is secretly vegetables here, eat it. Right, um, right. Certain books are meant to be discovered. I think Roald Dahl is that way. And, yeah. and so I discovered Matilda, which happens to be his masterpiece. It's I think his finest novel. Roald yeah, Dahl thought it was his finest novel. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite book to this day. And that was the first long book I read. And then shortly after that, we had our first scholastic book fair. And I have a distinct memory of bringing my money and looking through the books. And the first book I bought with my own money was Lloyd Alexander's Book of Three, which is the first volume in the Chronicles of Prydain. And that sent me down a, a long, wonderful Lloyd Alexander rabbit hole that I did not emerge from for probably two years. Allison's face just lit up when you said that because she just recently, how long ago was it that you discovered those books? Uh, January or something? Yeah. In the oh, last wow. Year. So you're fresh. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. They, they're wonderful books. And, uh, and I, I think there's something in some ways, I think sometimes adults come to those books and they feel like a little too similar to Lord of the Rings. But when you realize that he was studying actual Welsh folklore and kind of coming to these discoveries about the way dwarves worked on his own. And more importantly, the books have a humor that I think Tolkien most of the time lacks. I think there's a real wonderful, just a, a wonderful vein of, of humor and joy through that entire series. Okay, there's so many directions I want to go. I'm trying to decide where, which direction to go next because you've given me so much good stuff to think about with that last little bit. Thinking through the fact that your mom pulled you home and then just gave you tons and tons of time to read, not just gave you time to read, but required you to read, and that the act of reading and reading becoming faster and easy for you very likely increased your, you know, your enjoyment of it, which turned you into a reader. That just, to me, that feels so exciting because I know that for my oldest three kids, none of them were early readers. But we always put the priority on helping them fall in love with stories and fall in love with books. And their ability to read ended up, you know, it came around whenever they were ready for it to. And then they had that love of reading already deep I, within them. I have, so, I have yeah. to stop you and figure out how many children you have. Because <laughs> you already cited four. Yeah, so I, we have six. <laughs> we, had our, we had our children in batches. So we had, yeah, our oldest are 15, 13, and 11. And then we have another batch of small kids that are four and the twins are three. So, yeah, okay. it's, it's a little well, bit. Allison, yeah. Allison, as a middle child, 
uh, you have my sympathies. I understand your plight of being stuck sandwiched between two other siblings. That's a rough lot, but you have my blessing. I hope <laughs> I hope you're able to survive older and young siblings. Oh, you wouldn't be able to survive it, do you think? I'm a middle um, child too, so I, she does oh, have there my you sympathy go. too. Yeah, there we go. So we, we quietly favor them even as we ignore them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the more exactly. You, you think their kids, yeah. Yeah, well, you have three now, so you have your own middle child there too. Yeah, quietly no, my wife is also a middle child, and so we're, we quietly favor her while, again, simultaneously realizing she's not getting the attention. <laughs> that. So even as we're stepping into the horrible tradition of ignoring the middle child, we it at least- It can't be helped. It can't be helped. It at least breaks our heart a little. So, Allison, do you want to ask a few of the questions that you have? Okay. What's your favorite book of yours? Oh, that's a really good question. I will tell you this, though. A lot of writers like to throw back that question and be like, that's like asking me my favorite child, which uh, I think is All foolish. All ask authors I've asked that question yeah. say that. That's foolish for two reasons. First of all, I don't think it's true about books. Second of all, I'm not sure it's necessarily true about children. Because if I had a really horrible little <laughs> troll of a child and then a sweet little angel, I'd you know, I'd love one more than the other. Luckily, my kids are okay so far. They're all just slightly above troll. Um, but uh, but that could change at any minute. In terms of my books, I think the easiest answer is the book I'm writing right now. In order to write a book, I think you need to be like stupidly head over heels in love with it. And you need to think that it is such an important and wonderful thing to write, which is a lie. The world will not stop if you stop writing your story. But in order to write a story, you need to just kind of be almost delusional like that. And so the book I'm in the middle of right now feels like the most important and special and wonderful magical thing I will ever write. And I'm sure once I'm done with that, the one after that will feel that way. But it's always kind of a, a forward looking thing. It feels a little dangerous to look on my back books with any any preference because I feel like then I would struggle moving forward. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite book of someone else's? Oh, that is a very difficult question as well. And that one has a less easy answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> as you sound like a serious reader, so maybe you can identify that there are so many books that it's impossible to pick a favorite one. Usually, sometimes moment by moment, I have a book I really, truly and deeply love. One book that I have loved for a long time and kind of come back to recently just because it's it's such a wonderful book. Is, and, I, and I've talked a lot about it, but Treasure Island has always been a huge influence on me. And, and I teach a children's literature course, and I just made the whole class read the book so that we could talk about it once again. And I was once again <laughs> shocked at how good it is. Yeah, I like that book. It's pretty wonderful. Mm -hmm. What about you? What's your favorite book? Oh, I don't have a favorite book. I have favorite series, and there's about okay. five of them because I can't narrow it down anymore. Fair I enough. like Andrew Peterson's Wing Feather Saga. I don't know about that at all. Tell me about it. Oh, it's wonderful. You should read it. I don't want to spoil anything. Well, you have to tell me something. Otherwise, I just think it's about wings and feathers. <laughs> it's not really about wings or feathers. Well, then I'd be very disappointed. <laughs> what do they have to do? Well, there's the Igaby children. That will be Janner, Lily, and Tink Igaby. And... I think that's the one where they get kidnapped, right? They get kidnapped by the mysterious Fangs of Dang, which rule the place where they live, Scree. The Fangs of Dang came from across the Dark Sea of Darkness, <laughs> and they attacked Scree and conquered it, and so now the Fangs monitor everything. And the Ikkaby children get caught, and they get put in the jail. They do. Okay, let me narrow some stuff down that'll help me figure out. So are they riding horses or driving cars? Technically, 
they don't do either, but I think okay. riding horses would be closer. Okay, so it's old timey, but there's magic in it. Yes, this is an, okay. an alternate. Does everyone have access to magic or only a couple people? There isn't really magic, but the creatures are mythical. There's like Okay. Let me see, what's a good one? They have a thing called the the toothy cow, which is a menacing <laughs> cow that lives in the forest, and you don't want to get near a toothy cow. Ever. Okay. Are are all the things a little bit silly in the same way that Dark Sea of yeah, Darkness? Is there really? This sounds fantastic. There is supposedly the worst creature ever. It's a bird with a belly button. <laughs> that's the problem. Well, that is it has a belly button. So that's why it's the worst. I think it was the Snick Buzzard. I don't remember what it was called. Well, this sounds like a wonderful series. I will have to check it out. It's called Featherwing. <laughs> Wing, Wing Feather Saga. Wing Feather. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, Wing Feather. I will be looking that up because I'm always interested to look for to fall in love with new series, and that sounds wonderful. Thanks, Allison. Where did you get the idea to have a character like Peter Nimble? Well, that's a great question. The character Peter Nimble probably came from a number of different places, but one of the more direct links to that character actually came from Treasure Island, which I mentioned before. My father used to read aloud to me every single night, and he would read his favorite books, including Treasure Island which I feel like he read to me a number of times because I kind of got sick of it by the time I was uh, about your age. But I've come back to, you know, fallen back in love with it. But if you recall, you know, Jim Hawkins, he finds his treasure map. He goes on this big adventure. All the pirates are trying to trick him and, you know, try to get the map or kill him or do whatever. But before all of that happens, when he's just at the inn and we're kind of getting into the beginning of the story, the first beyond Billy Bones, the old sea dog that's shown up, and I guess maybe you get Black Dog too. So maybe it's the third bad guy we see show up really. He's this this kind of unassuming character whose name is Blind Old Pew, and he's this old withered beggar who's got a bandage around his eyes, and he stumbles around with a cane. And when Jim first sees this old man, he feels really bad for him. He's a, you know, the old guy's kind of weird and creepy, but he brings him inside to help him because he's so helpless. And then we get this like lightning fast transformation that the second the guy is inside, he starts grabbing this kid Jim's arm, and he starts squeezing and twisting. And Jim actually thinks he's going to rip it right off. And we get this kind of flash of discovery that this helpless old man is actually incredibly dangerous and deadly, and pirates are terrified just by the name Blind Old Pew. And I was also terrified when my dad read this book to me the first time, and I was really traumatized by the character Pew, and I would have these horrible like nightmares. I was afraid he was going to come get me. This is true. My father would sometimes, after that, he would stumble down the hallway pretending to be Blind Pew and like calling out my name, and I'd be like, shut up, Dad, I know it's you. <laughs> Again, um, I really want to meet your parents. <laughs> <laughs> good people. And but I was really compelled by that idea. I was fascinated by the idea of a character who was perceived as so weak and feeble and helpless and actually did have to, you know, struggle because he couldn't see, but was, you know, beneath that incredibly dangerous and incredibly capable and people are always underestimating him. And that was something I carried with me for a long time and and when I started Peter Nimble, I knew I wanted to write this book about, you know, this boy who's the greatest thief who ever lived, but I was trying to kind of add a little something extra to it and I realized what if just like old Pew Peter Nimble was blind. And uh, how much more amazing would his thievery be if he's doing it all on top of kind of overcoming his inability to see? And so that sort of that sort of clicked the character into place. And that was the number one influence and inspiration for him. 
We'll get back to the show in just a minute. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that what I propose for this summer is a relaxed and simple plan that offers just enough structure to keep your days from melting into chaos and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. And what summer wouldn't be much, much better with a whole bunch of fairy tales? Well, I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer And here's what we're going to talk about. First, how reading fairy tales can make your summer easier. Yes, easier. We want to take things off your plate this summer, not put more on, right? (laughs) Fairy tales can make your summer easier and more fun. I'm also going to share the fairy tales I recommend for every age and the tippy top thing you can do to make sure your kids make delightful memories this summer. It is way less work and way less pressure than you think. The free workshop is happening live online on May 7th, 2024, and you can save your free seat by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And yes, there's a replay, so make sure you register even if you can't join us live on May 7th. Again, text the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. So I would love to talk a little bit about Sophie Choir and The Last Story Guard, which is, of course, the sequel to Peter Nimble and his fantastic eyes. I know I heard on another interview you gave where you talked about wanting to explore this idea of what happens when we turn our backs on story. So tell me a little bit about that and the development of that book. Oh, that's a great question. That was exactly so that, you know, one of the things that's happened is it happened a little bit in Peter Nimble. There's kind of a nice sort of, you know, Peter Nimble's a little edgier, but it's it's still got kind of a nice fairy tale quality. And there's a little bit about kind of the act of telling stories and what that means. And then my second book, The Night Gardener, which is unrelated, it's this standalone kind of Victorian haunted house story. The idea of storytelling is very central to the book. And one of the main questions that the whole book is wrestling with is what is the difference between a story and a lie? And so I, I kind of dove very deep into, into the ideas of stories with that book. But after writing that and spending a lot of time, you know, as a children's author, you spend a lot of time talking to educators, teachers, librarians, and it's very easy to say kind of flattering things about the importance of reading in books that everyone nods their heads and like jots down and like, oh, yes, absolutely. But sometimes when I hear these things or I say them myself, I I realize they feel kind of like hollow platitudes. They feel like you're just, you know, you're saying what people want to hear. And if you actually dive deeper into the question, the question becomes more tricky. You know, what is the point of a story? really, because they're these insubstantial things. And, uh, you know, they don't feed an empty belly, they don't suture a wound. You know, a story serves no real functional purpose in the world that you can point to. And yet, I know, and I think I suspect you guys know that when the, the right reader finds the right story, something almost mystical transpires, and it can actually transform who they are and their perception of the whole world. And so I wanted to write a book that takes very seriously the question, what is the point of stories? And so I started writing this story, Sophie Choir. It's the story of a a 12-year-old bookmender who's trapped in a city that doesn't read. And this girl, Sophie Choir, what she discovers is that the characters and creatures and magical wonders she reads inside her storybooks are actually real. They're not make-believe, and they exist just on the edges of the world she knows. And she also discovers that the only thing protecting or standing between her world and complete destruction are 
these stories and that she has been selected. When she finds a magic book that can, is actually alive and can answer questions she asks it, she learns that she's been selected as the story guard with the lone protector of these stories. And it was really a way to take basically, you know, it's a companion book to Peter Nimble. You don't need to read them in order. But I wanted to kind of dive much more deeply into the question of what the point of stories is. And the way I got there eventually is by standing it on its head. So in, instead of attacking it by saying, here's why stories are important, it became the easier way to look at it was to say, well, here's what's at stake when stories go away. And I think when a community and a culture loses its sense of wonder and its sense of curiosity and its sense of sort of, again, like I want to say like a childlike sense of wonder and belief in these stories and, and rituals and these mysteries of their past, they completely lose their sense of who they are. And I think there's a tremendous amount at stake. And so that book is really about illustrating that idea. Okay, that reminded me so much. I thought it was a Chesterton quote, but I, it turns out it was a C.S. Lewis quote. And you probably already know it, but it's that friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. That just like to me, when you were talking, I thought that's exactly what that is. It's when you said stories are inconsequential. They don't feed your belly or suture your wounds, but they give value to this life that we live. So that is a wonderful quote. Yeah, absolutely. That's a perfect example of and no one would ever question the importance and value of friendship. And yet when we're forced to articulate it, it can become very difficult. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's hard even sometimes for somebody who loves stories so much or who has been so formed by stories, maybe to articulate how formational or critical those stories have been. Just like when you have a friendship that means so much to you, it's hard to put into words exactly what it means to you, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Okay, Jonathan, what advice could you give to parents to help them connect their kids with the joy of good stories. I know that a lot of parents, like me, have worried over time You know that our kids might not be reading as early as we want them to. But then we, at some point, we get over that fear because they're reading. And now our biggest, our strongest desire is that our kids will love stories the way we want them to. And I know that obviously was a desire of your mother's as she you know, made that a priority for you when you were a child. What do you think you could tell parents who really want that for their children as well? Well, in some ways, I would feel like a fraud answering that. And I say that because I have very young children, which means I have not really entered the phase of the dreaded iPhone and iPad screen, which I think is a, an enormous competitor. When I was growing up, there were Nintendos and such, but we weren't allowed to have those. We also didn't have TV, which was helpful. We watched a lot of old movies. But uh, the main thing I do think and the thing that I, you know, my wife and I talk about this with raising our daughters, you know, again, it's very easy and important to encourage parents reading aloud to their children. I think that's a wonderful form of bonding. But there's something that I feel like we don't talk about quite as much that I think is equally important, which is I think it's essential for our children to see us reading. And reading aloud with your kid is great. And I think this happens a lot with dads. The dads will read aloud to their kids, but the kids can smell that it's sort of like it's vitamins, it's vegetables, it's good for them. <laughs> uh -huh. I'm doing this because it's good for you, kid, but I would rather be watching a football game because that's where, you know, the vast majority of fathers in this country consume their stories is on ESPN. And I think one of the, the best gifts my father gave me, he was an avid reader. He was also a comic book reader. So every single week, I've never seen him throw a ball, but every week we walked to the comic shop and would pick up new comic books to read. And we would talk about those. And beyond that, he read all sorts, you know, fiction, nonfiction, everything he could get his hands on. I constantly saw him reading. I constantly saw my mother reading. And so I was taught that those were adult activities. Those weren't things. And, you know, when I was projecting into my future of what it'll be like when I'm grown up and have my own home and my own life and can make my own choices, I just assumed that one of those choices I would make is what I'll be reading next. And when you talk to parents, specifically, again, dads, not to harp on them, 
but I, I harp on them because I am one of them. So I see the, <laughs> the traps, but I, and, and I was a boy once and I know how important the, that relationship and that, that modeling can be. But I think the number one thing we can do to help our kids is show them that reading is an activity, not just worth their time, but worth our time. Oh, that's so good. I feel that too, as a parent where I feel so pulled. I mean, even as a, a grown up who values reading and wants to be a reader and wants to make a lot of space and time for reading, I can feel myself so pulled by the culture and my phone and all the pings and dings of everything I'm supposed to be doing and forget to read on my own outside of reading to my kids. So that is a really beautiful reminder that that modeling does so much more than we could do with, you know, chiding our children or giving them, you know, a certain amount of reading time a day or whatever. We just need to be modeling it as well. Absolutely. That's so good. Okay. So I've heard this little rumor that at book signings, you actually try to get the kids to take home books, not yours, like other books besides yours. So tell me more about that. Is that true? (laughs) That is absolutely true. So of course I want them to get my book, maybe several of my books, but once that mission has been accomplished, I tend to, and this is, I also have very long, slow signing lines <laughs> because I tend to get very chatty and I like getting book recommendations um, We're shocked in the same way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the same way that I liked hearing Allison talk about her new series, Wing Feather, Feather Wing, Wing Feather, Wing Feather. Um, I'm always looking for recommendations. I love hearing what kids are talking about, what they enjoy. And no sooner do you do that than when, you know, when a kid describes something they're enjoying it because I read a lot and I, I get excited about stories it often pings in my head something else that I think they would enjoy. And I find it's a lot easier to get really braggy and aggressive about books I didn't write. You know, I'll try to tell you my book's good, you should read it. But, you know, you you put Origami Yoda in my hands and you can't shut me up about how great I actually think it is. And I always have, it's tricky because new bookstores don't stock very many kind of old canon books or classic books. A handful do, and that's always wonderful. So I have to really keep up with what's on the shelves in the last two years. But there are so many great stories happening all the time that no matter what kid I talk to, no matter how much they say they hate reading altogether, I see it as a personal challenge to make sure that they are walking out of the store with a book they've never heard of that I absolutely know they will love. so much. I used to work at the library and it would be the highlight of my day if a kid came up to me and said, oh, I just finished this book and I don't know what to read next. I thought, oh my goodness, I thought you'd never ask. So now <laughs> I kind of selfishly will ask my, my kids' friends when they're over, so what are you reading? Because <laughs> I'll, be I'll be able to kind of, you know, tap into what do they like? And maybe I could give you another recommendation for your next book, or maybe I'll find something new to read that we haven't discovered yet. So absolutely, that's so fun. Do you find yourself recommending the same things over and over again? And if so, what are some of those? Oh, yeah, there are a handful of, you know, there's some books that you just know every kid is going to love. And some of them don't need my help. You know, when Wonder first came out, I read it Mm -hmm. pretty early on. I think I might have even read it in arc form. And so for, you know, a brief six month window, I was very aggressively telling kids about Wonder. And then the whole universe learned about Wonder. I didn't need to do that anymore. Um, (laughs) I find, you know, when I when I talk to kids who uh, I mentioned Origami Yoda, the Tom Engelberger series, that's a great series to hand to kids who read Wimpy Kid, but don't know something next. I'm also a huge fan of, you know, you get a lot of kids who like graphic novels. I'm a huge fan of Nathan Hale's Hazardous Tales series, which are these nonfiction graphic novels. I haven't Um, seen those, I don't think. Oh, they're phenomenal. And they're hilarious. And they're dark. And they're wonderful. Nathan Hale's Hazardous Tales. Those are some of my go to. But you know, a lot of kids really like scary books like The Night Gardener. So one of the books, you know, Tracy Batiste has that book, The Jumbies that came out last year, which was just kind of a wonderful, chilling tale. 
And, you know, there's always something I've read that I'm really excited about. So, okay. I'm glad you brought that up about scary books because I meant to ask you that and I forgot. So you said that you, when you were talking about, was it Pew was the character? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you were frightened by characters and stories as a child, I'm assuming in books sounds like anyway. And The Night Gardener is really a scary story. So tell me more about that. As a child, I was very sensitive. I knew I did not like being frightened. I have a distinct memory of uh, my third grade teacher was reading aloud some slightly creepy book. I feel like it's like someone got trapped inside a dollhouse or something. And the whole class loved it. And I and my parents never knew about this, but I went up to her and I said, look, I'm not trying to get out of doing work, but I would like to sit in the hallway with nothing to do while you read that for half an hour a day, because I'd rather be sitting on the hallway floor by myself than hearing that story. And not because it's bad, but because I'm not ready for it. Um, oh my I was, goodness, I was, what did you do? <laughs> she let me. She was actually a very mean teacher, but she let that happen. <laughs> she, was, she was nice to me then. But, uh, but I was always extremely sensitive, specifically to, oddly enough, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable with uh, sort of realistic depictions of evil, of blood and violence in the world, but very sensitive to metaphysical depictions of evil. Um, from from a very young age. And that mm. still holds into adulthood. So it's a very strange thing that I wrote The Night Gardener. I was trying quite hard to actually keep the book light, even though the, the ideas and the story and the world uh, were sort of driving the story darker and darker. I worked quite hard to kind of keep touches of light in it. But the thing that I, you know, I ran into was basically that book was really a way to teach myself courage in the face of my own fears, which, which sort of overwhelmed me. You mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier, and, and one of my favorite pieces of writing about children's literature of all time is his essay on three ways of writing for children. And he talks for you know, at, at great length about basically what it means to be afraid as a child and sort of how the terror that children feel is inevitable. And the stories, certain stories that maybe they obsess about and get scared about, they might be the occasion for the fear. But if they hadn't have read that story, they would have been afraid of something else. And he talks about how when he was a kid, he was terrified of bugs. He didn't need a story to teach him to be afraid because that's just natural to childhood. And in that same essay, he also quotes Chesterton to bring it back to (laughs) our old pal Gilbert and cites that wonderful phrase that I think was also paraphrased in the beginning of Coraline, which is children don't. I think (laughs) as you were saying that I was pulling it up. I started giggling. Fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. Absolutely. And and that's, I think, what I thought about writing The Night Gardener, is that I wanted to teach myself how to kind of stare my own fears directly in the eye. So good. Well, I asked Allison, because she's read The Night Gardener, and I said, was it scary? You know, like, how scary was it? Because she's read a lot of scary books. Andy Wilson writes some scary books. Mm-hmm. And she had this delicious smile on her face and said, yes. <laughs> so, oh, is that kind of scary? Okay, we're good. <laughs> good. I actually, I honestly... So a couple people read The Night Gardener before it came out and told me I was going to get a ton of angry mail from parents. And I have never heard a thing, not a single word uh, of complaint. Don't. That's not an invitation. Uh, but <laughs> So your email is. Uh... <laughs> exactly. uh, but, but it seems and I think it's true. You know, I worked pretty hard to make sure that any reader, you know, the youngest hero in that book is 10 years old, this boy named Kip. And I worked pretty hard to have Kip kind of give a younger reader cues on how to handle what was happening. Because I think I feel like we can handle very scary stuff so long as we have a good guide. Okay, so as you're talking, I'm hearing so much of these like deep, resounding truths that you kind of weave into your stories without being didactic or like heavy-handed. I really can't abide children's stories that are just like poorly veiled moral stories. And what I loved so much about Peter Nimble and his fantastic guides is I kept taking out quotes that I felt like were probably tapping into some 
deeper truth or meaning, but we're so well woven into the story. And I just pulled open my little commonplace book so I could see which ones I've been writing out. And this is a couple of them. One from page 17, Peter Nimble. It was, and last, Peter Nimble. I have called you forth not because of what you may become, but because of what you already are. If you ever find yourself in serious trouble, remember your nature above all things. I remember when I read that and I thought, oh, this is not going to be an ordinary book. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be amazing. And it has been. And as I've been, as I've been talking with Allison, I've read Peter Nimble and she's read all of your books. And we've been talking through, you know, some of the things that make us laugh and some of the things that make us stop and think. There's just so much to your stories that doesn't meet the eye. And that is the best kind of children's story of all. Oh, that's immensely gratifying to hear. Thank you very much. Now, I copy out quotes from books all the time, but so do my kids. And Allison copied out this one from Sophie and the story, Sophie Choir and the Story Guard. Wait, did I get the last title? Of the last Guard. of the Story Guard. Sophie Choir and the Last Story Guard. She had, in fact, never met an author in her life. As you can imagine, it was a singularly thrilling experience. Should you ever be so lucky as to encounter an author in your life, you should shower him or her with gifts and praise. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Allison came into the kitchen the day she read that and was laughing because at the Read Aloud Revival, we do these monthly author access events where kids can meet authors on these live webinars. And I thought that is too funny. I should start. We should start every single author access event lathering these authors with gifts and praise. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> you should. Uh, and we should begin with you. <laughs> I wrote that as a joke and it made me laugh. It turns out it made a lot of other people laugh. I have not gotten any gifts so far. Uh, so apparently wasn't clear enough uh, that I want actual like chocolate bars and things like that. Balloon animals, whatever people can muster. They didn't take the hint quite literally. No, but that was uh, certainly and that was also, I mean, honestly, one of the, my favorite things about my job getting to be a children's author is I go to these events that are full of other authors, many of whom are my favorite authors. And it's sort of mind blowing to get to like hang out with these people and have them, you know, because kids authors are all pretty nice. Even if they don't know who I am, they have to be polite. And so getting to meet authors has has honestly been one of the most exciting things about this job. And so, (laughs) so I, so I, I both, it is both self-serving, but also a true reflection of how I feel. Yeah, that's too funny. Well, I know there were several times when she was reading that book where she told me, oh my gosh, mom, you're going to love this one. And I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet. It's on my nightstand though. I can't wait to dive in because I have a feeling Sophie Choir is going to be a book I will love. So I can argue. I hope so. (laughs) Who is your favorite author? Oh, that's a great question, Allison. I have a lot of favorite authors. That's something that does fluctuate. Over time, though, I would say I have two authors who just I just adore and I come back to again and again. The first is a children's author, and that would be Roald Dahl, who I just can't get enough of. It started all the way, you know, a million years ago when I was eight years old and read Matilda, my first real long book that I read on my own. And that that's really never abated. And in terms of adult authors, I'm an enormous, apparently I like the initials RD because my favorite adult author is the Canadian fiction writer Robertson Davies, whose book, specifically his first novel, which is called Fifth Business, was just sort of a, a revelation to me when I came out of university. And, um, and he's another one of these writers that and when I'm, when I'm feeling overwhelmed by the world, I just love dipping into his stories. And, you know, every time I read a book, I feel like I've had a good long chat with him, which is a pretty wonderful feeling. You know, it's funny you say that Matilda was the first long book you read that kind of turned you into a reader because that, I would say, is the first long book that I read as well that I remember feeling like my world had just changed. I had just discovered something that I didn't really 
realize existed, which were these stories that nobody else read to me, but I was going to find on my own. And it was Matilda that did that for me as well. So, wow. Well, for those listening who would love to connect with you, I can't wait to share a direct link actually to your website where kids can dress you up as Sherlock Holmes or Wolverine or a total dork. (laughs) (laughs) Allison and I had fun with that before we got on the call today. But um, so we will include a link to your website, which is the scop.com. Actually, tell me about that. Why is it called the scop? Scop is an old English word. Uh, I think it was first identified in Beowulf. And it means basically storyteller or bard might be the closer translation. It's a word I always loved. I love that there was this word for storyteller that you can't find in a dictionary. And so I years and years before I started writing, I kind of would obsessively doodle the word and think about the word over and over again. And I've always in every book I write, I try to find a way to sneak the word in purely for my own pleasure. But I ended up naming the website after that as well. Great. So that's at the scop, uh, the scop.com. And if you are listening and want to head there, we'll have links to it, of course, in the show notes. So if you go to readaloudrevival.com, you'll be able to find a link there. Jonathan, where else can people connect with you? Or is that the best place? You know, I have a weird name, which means I'm incredibly Googleable. So <laughs> <laughs> always happy to connect with readers on Facebook or on Twitter. Yeah, you can certainly visit my website. If you have specific questions, there's always an email link on there, but I'm not too hard to track down. Fantastic. And we'll have links to your Facebook page and your Twitter handle and all that on the page as well. Well, thank you so much. This has been a treat and we are really grateful that you took some time out to chat with us today. Thanks so much, Sarah. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. My name is Gabriella. I'm eight years old and I live in California. My favorite book is Baker's Mess. It's about a girl named Bee who bakes, but she's not just an ordinary baker. If she's annoyed when she's baking and you take a bite of her pastry, then you get annoyed. If she's sad when she's baking and you take a bite of her pastry, then you burst in tears. Eventually, she meets some friends and they go on an adventure full of magic and danger. Hello, my name is Thomas. I'm five years old. I live in England. My favorite book is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Laura. My favorite part is when Charlie unwraps the chocolate bar and finds a gold ticket. And everyone gets excited. Hi, I'm Jojo and I'm two. Eleven and I'm not Illinois. I like Jack. Jack from what book? From My Little House in the Prairie. Hi, my name is Thea. I'm six years old. I live in Illinois. My favorite book is Little Pear. My favorite part is when he goes to the city and he meets this man on the road to the place and he lets him come see the city again where he lives. And his little pair has never seen the city before. And he was going to say, I love this place, but instead he said, I'm so hungry. My name is Adlai and I'm five years old. I live in Illinois, and my favorite book is Little Pear. My favorite part is is when Little Pear was going to say, I love this place, but instead he said, oh, I'm so hungry. (laughs) 
Hi, my name is Elias, and I'm, I'm eight years old, and I live in Seattle, Washington. And my favorite um, series is Hank the Cowdog. And my favorite book of Hank the Cowdog is The Case of the Most Ancient Bone. And something that I like about it is that Hank, the main character, makes so many bad decisions to make the story funny. My name is Bob. I'm almost three. And I live in Seattle, Washington. My favorite book is The Big Red Barn. The Big Red Barn. By Margaret Wise Brown. By Margaret Wise Brown. And I like to see all the animals. I like to see all the animals. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, my name is Acacia, and I live in Seattle, Washington. I'm five and a half years old, and my favorite book is McGrimm's Wonderful One Acre Farm. I really like it because because there's a, a really big wind that blows the children out of the chimney, and that's why I like it, and it's really funny. My name is Sadie, and I live in California, and my favorite book is Richard Scary's, and I like it because when they, they deliver some bread, to a bakery, and then, like, a little baker Charlie, he made tiny loaves, and he, so, he made little tiny loaves, and then he put too much yeast in them, and so they puffed up. How old are you? Four. Hi, I'm Heidi. I'm Quincy's mom. Quincy is four years old from Southern California, and she has autism. She is nonverbal, and even though she can't physically tell you, she is passionate about books and reading. Quincy never leaves home without a book. Some of her favorite books are Oh No! by Candace Fleming, The Going to Bed Book by Sandra Boynton, and she loves to listen to the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones before bedtime. Oh my goodness, so beautiful. I have goosebumps. Hey, thanks to all of our callers. I love those messages. If your kids would like to leave a message to be aired on the Read Aloud Revival podcast, or if you would like to leave a message, we love them all. Head to readaloudrevival.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you'll see how easy it is to leave a message. Don't forget to head to the website and check out our brand new Read Aloud Revival shop, where you can find fantastic tools and resources that will help you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books, as well as a new, brand new Read Aloud Revival gift shop. I hope you visit, and hey, you know what? I appreciate you so much. Have a wonderful, happy Christmas, and we'll see you in the new year. Until then, go build your family culture around books. 